You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello and welcome to Middle East Analysis. I'm feeling a bit chirpy today. I don't know why. I think mainly it's because I'm sitting opposite Dr. Harry Hagopian, our usual studio guest and the voice of Middle East Analysis. Harry, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much, James. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And when you said the voice, I immediately <laughs> remembered that ITV program, which also has Tom Jones, yes. where they they choose the best song or, or the best artist or the best performing artist. So in a sense, this is the voice, yes, of Middle East Analysis. And it's a pleasure to be with you for another dabbling in the politics of the MENA and Gulf region for September. I wish you hadn't said that, because now I've got this vision of your chair being the other way round, <laughs> and I'll sort of go, Lebanon, and you'll go, shoot, shoot the right way round, and we'll end up talking about it. Deary me, you're put, putting all these images in my head. Now, do you know what I like about today's podcast? I like the suggestion that you made as a bit of a vehicle for the podcast, that being the United Nations General Assembly. Indeed. Can't have escaped your attention, of course, at the 77th session mm-hmm. after a little little pause for COVID, something mm-hmm. that most of the world is aware of at this point, I think. Indeed. So a couple of weeks at the end of September, lots of business, heads of state. And naturally, because this is Middle East analysis, although we do, of course, cover North Africa, Gulf states, we're going to use that to just bring us up to speed with a few realities, aren't we, based upon the concerns that were discussed, the heads of state that spoke, and so on. That's exactly what we're going to do. And uh, the UN General Assembly, which happens annually for about a couple of weeks toward the second half of September, roughly, is also a very, very convenient vehicle for a whole variety of things, uh, James, not least, okay, the heads of uh, states, the prime ministers, the foreign ministers, different people send different representatives for this highfalutin' event where they basically talk about what they do, what their issues are, what their concerns are, how they see the United Nations impacting those concerns. But as uh, Ambassador Tom Fletcher, who used to be the UK ambassador in Lebanon, a wonderful guy who's now turned to academia, he basically said, if I remember correctly, in one of the tweets that he'd posted that and rightly so, in my opinion, that it's not really only for the heads of states, for Biden, for other people to come, the Chancellor of Germany, the President of France, to come and speak. It is also because the sideshows, the sidebars, the little meetings that take place on the side of the General Assembly are the ones that really really matter. Because what you say on the podium is basically for public consumption. It's the PR. It's you basically saying we're the best and we can do this and we can do that and what have you. But when you go and have little sideshows, meetings in one of the small uh, committee rooms, that is really when conflict resolution is at its optimal because that is when people sit and say, okay, nobody's listening to us now. We're not at the podium. Let's try and do something. So there are a lot of these that are happening. And of course, they happen with issues related to the Middle East, North Africa and the Gulf, just as they have to do with, uh, I don't know, Ukraine, just as they have to do with uh, climate issues, uh, as they have to do with food security. All these things will be there. But people get together in little bunches. It could be one-on-one. It could be a group of uh, countries together getting together and maybe talking about what's happening in Lebanon. We're concerned about Lebanon. We think that Lebanon is going off the rails. What do we do? So these are the things that really matter for me. And as somebody who's done uh, conflict resolution in the past, I have a lot of time and respect for this because I think this is when you have to sit and talk. And how many of those heads of uh, states actually manage to sit and powwow in uh, the same room 
the way they do at the UN General Assembly. So many people have said that the United Nations is a little bit of an anachronistic instrument, that it no longer has any influence, that look at the General Secretary, Antonio Guterres, for instance, what is he doing? How much is the UN able to impose its uh, will? How many of its resolutions, the General Assembly, non-binding, the Security Council never actually manages to agree on anything, hardly anything. How effective is the United Nations? And for me, the United Nations is not only or no longer is only a place where you pass resolutions and you send peacekeeping forces. The United Nations is also a place where you do brainstorming. And what better way of doing brainstorming than getting all these people from all these different countries across five continents and saying, okay, do your bit. And that's what happens at the United Nations GA, which is why I thought, as you just mentioned in your intro, let's do something and pick on a few of those issues from our own neighborhood in Middle East analysis and see where that takes us. Well, that's fascinating, but I wonder if you've killed off all my research there by saying all the podium speeches, basically, it's what you'd expect to hear, public domain stuff, nothing surprising. Hence the amount of times we heard mentions of climate change and the need to cooperate globally. It was... uh, It's all diplomacy, I guess. It's the sort of stuff you'd imagine. So we will talk about those things, but I, I... I did want to ask you the question off the back of that. Have you been involved in any of those little sidebars, those little private chats, Harry? Fly on the wall stuff. Well, let me answer this rather subtly because this is one of those questions that you're probing, one of your probing questions. The only thing I would say in relation to that is that my real area of interest in the world is the Middle East, North Africa, and to a smaller degree, the Gulf region. I suppose I am interested perhaps in what happens in the South Caucasus, but that's because Armenia is there. And Armenia, well, I wasn't born in Armenia, but Armenia is the spiritual homeland of all Armenians. Mm. So what happens there matters to Armenians. But that's a personal interest. When it comes to professional, political, diplomatic interest, the region that interests me is the MENA and Gulf region, which is at the very heart of MEA. And therefore, When you combine that or you blend that with another fact that you know, which is that I've done track two negotiations, I've done uh, conflict resolution. So inevitably, in track two, what happens in track two? In track two is when people, unimportant people like me, (laughs) have discussions with other unimportant people. And then we brief the important people on how to proceed with their decisions and their conversations. So inevitably, the preparation, the introduction, the, the, the tarmacking of the highway is done by track tours. And then the key people, the important people, come and stand there and take it up for their decisions. I think you're kind of saying to me, whilst trying to be humble, that it's the... Uh unimportant people that are suddenly briefing the important people to think like the unimportant people. Well, let me answer you with another little analogy there, uh, James. I've always said that wars aren't won by generals, they're won by soldiers. Uh Aha. Very well said. I would be playful no longer. (laughs) Although, interestingly, when you were talking about things, whether they're binding or not, you know, I just thought to myself, right, I'm going to have a look at a few UN resolutions from way back when. So I delved back to 1967. Okay. Interesting date. Oh, you went to 242 and 338. Yes, I did. I did. I had a look at them. And you look at some of these things and, and you see stuff like, you know, the inadmissibility of acquiring territory by war and the need for a just and lasting peace. We're still saying that. So it might be a very noble thing to put down as a resolution, you know, all those years ago, 65 years ago, whatever it is now, but we're still banging the same drum, aren't we? We are certainly banging the same drum, and that is the difference between what you aspire for and what you actually achieve. But there is something else, and since you began with 242 and 338, which happened on the back of the Six-Day War that Israel won decisively against Arab countries, in that war, the resolution that followed 242 basically talked about all territories that are occupied by Israel should be returned to their rightful owners. And the big quibble there was whether the definite article, the, 
was included in all the territories or all territories. And of mm. course, when you remove that definite article, whether that was done uh, willfully or by negligence, you can interpret it differently. One side would say, well, it's everything you took in 67. It's not yours. Give it back to us. And then the other side would say, well, no, all territories, there are territories that are not to be returned. So it just shows you how diplomacy is, is a very difficult art. And this is why when people talk about this, I mean, there is a Colombian novelist uh, who said that it's easy to, he's, he's dead now, who, Marquez, he said that it's easy to start wars. It's very difficult to end them. And it's very difficult to end them because it's very difficult to agree on how to end them. Mm. And that's part of the uh, problem. And uh, as you well know, I've been a fan of uh, public international law in my legal career. And I've also done a lot of work on the UN. So I like the UN. I read quite a bit about what they're doing. But I also know that it could be mistaken for what it is not or it no longer is. And therefore, we have to be a bit more compassionate with the enormous Sisyphean task that the UN has to perform by getting that boulder up the mountain and it never manages to get to the top. So what it is and what it is not, I've got to ask you, what is its value then? Its value is precisely that it provides you with a texture, with a ground, with a space where countries come and try to wrestle with their diplomatic issues peacefully, whereas the option of not having that little room where they have the ability to sit and talk, like the sideshows of the uh, General Assembly, but there are other issues as well. If that doesn't happen or if the other countries don't weigh in to try and refrain from uh, going into another destructive war, when then we will have even more violence and even more destruction and even more disorder in the world than we do today, alas. Indeed so. I guess the, the next question, and again, it's something of an obvious one, is where do we start? Because we could talk about Iraq. We could obviously talk about Israel-Palestine, and we went back all those years to, to touch upon that already. King Abdullah II of Jordan spoke, mm -hmm. as you know, again, mentioning refugees. We didn't talk about that, that we could talk about the refugee crisis, those fleeing wars such as Iraq, Syria, the, those obviously the Palestinian refugees. Uh, long-standing refugees. So many things we could talk about. Um, so it's not just Jordan. It's not just Israel-Palestine, not just Iraq. Lebanon, I know you want to talk about. Iran, I know you want to talk about. Iran is very much the topical issue Indeed. at the moment. Everybody yeah. is talking about Iran and what's happening in Iran. If we can get quickly off the Qatar, subject, we didn't mention. We could mention Qatar as well. And it's very interesting because there's one thing I'd like to mention about Qatar. Well, a couple of things. One is a future event, which the whole world knows <laughs> Have about. Have we mentioned that before? Yeah. Has it got a round ball? It has a round ball. Actually, it's, it's a bigger than a billiard ball. <laughs> but uh, the other thing I want to mention is something that the emir of Qatar said in his address to the General mm. Assembly, which caught my attention quite strongly. But if we start with Jordan, Palestine, Israel, and we dispense of that because we've done that almost ad nauseum in our previous MEA, so people can go back and find those brilliant episodes that you produced and they can listen to me rabbiting on in uh, any of those about Israel, Palestine and a little less about Jordan. So we're going but to go bite-sized with those? We're going to go very bite-sized with okay. those. So all I would say about Israel, Palestine and Jordan, you are absolutely right. The Israeli caretaker prime minister, Yair Lapid, spoke and he basically said that he's okay for a two-state solution, which was something that is not featuring at all in the electoral mood of the country. And uh, Israel-Palestine is not an issue on, in the forthcoming elections in Israel. But he said it, and it was quite uh, interesting to say, oh, He's re-evoking the issue of the two-state solution, which a lot of academics and some politicians have said that it is a no-go anyway. It's a dead, is it a dead duck or a dead goose or whatever it is? Cooked goose, Cooked dead goose, duck. Dead duck. But he said it, and of course he said, if the security conditions prevail, well, 
that doesn't answer anything to me because I can always make an argument that the security conditions do not prevail. Absolutely. So that was not really a starter, but he did, at least he did throw it in. And the other thing that caught my eye, and since we're doing this uh, episode in the UK, I was doing some conflict resolution in Finland, so I'm, I'm fresh with that. In uh, We're doing it in the UK. Yair Lapid met our new prime minister, Liz Truss, and he asked her to move the UK embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem the way Donald Trump did for the US embassy a few years ago when he was president. And it seems, from what I understand, that our prime minister, who's just new on the job, said, oh, well, she'll review that position. And I thought to myself, if I had much more hair on my head, I'll pull it out, (laughs) because all we need is now to go bang against international law and show that the UK doesn't care about uh, Geneva Convention, doesn't care about occupation or anything. We just go and get the embassy and put it in uh, Jerusalem. That is the bit that, that struck me in Lapid's statements addressed to the UNGA. Palestine, Abu Mazen Mahmoud Abbas was there. The Mm. man is getting on, but he still was quite strong. He again, of course, talked about the two-state solution because it's like a bone in a dog's mouth. He refuses to let go of the two-state solution, probably because he can't see any other option. He also tried to talk about uh, other countries recognizing Palestine, which in my opinion, if it were done, as I'm talking now as a negotiator, as a conflict resolution person, if more countries recognized Palestine, even though Palestine is under occupation, it is possible to recognize Palestine. Sweden did, by the way. Mm -hmm. What is the advantage of that? Because somebody, you might be very well justified to tell me, well, It's occupied territory. I mean, we have a virtual uh, monopoly uh, state. So what is the advantage of having it recognized by the EU 27, for instance, or by the UK, given that the UK had a huge mandate there and it is responsible for part of the mess that we are seeing today? Why recognize uh, Palestine? The reason would be that if you recognize Palestine, then the negotiation between Israelis and Palestinians or between Israel and Palestine acquires a higher profile and a different legal status because you're talking about two states. Now you're talking about one state with all the might that it has versus another non-state territory. So make it a state, then it would be like other, it would be exactly like the uh, southern uh, territories of the Ukraine that Russia has occupied and that it is trying, it is now having a referendum to make them Russian and give the people, the inhabitants of those territories, Russian passports, then people are saying, how can you do this? This is occupied territory, etc., etc. The same would apply uh, to Palestinians, whereas now the same legal provisions do not apply. That is the advantage of recognition. So that was what Mahmoud Abbas was saying. And he also, of course, which was good, he reminded the world that a Palestinian-American journalist by the name of Shirin Abu Akleh had been killed in Jenin and that despite all the hoo-ha in the public uh, domain in the media in Al Jazeera, where he was, she was a prominent journalist. Nothing has happened there. The United States has said many sweet words, has invited the Abu Akleh family to Washington D.C., but other than that, nothing really much. The ICC, which is already willing to look at the Ukraine situation and other situations is not yet willing or ready to look at this situation. And it's not only Shirin Abu Akli, the file is quite thick. But uh, there again, that's the difference between legal norms and legal norms that are politicized. So that was Mahmoud Abbas. And then the king of Jordan, King Abdullah, of course, he also talked about the two-state solution. He talked about the refugees because there are large numbers of Iraqi refugees, some Syrian refugees, a border that is very dangerous because there is a lot of movement of illicit goods and drugs between those two borders. Uh, All this is happening there, talked about the Palestinian refugees, but he also, as you yourself said, also talked about the critical status of Christianity under fire in the mm. Holy Land. And that was very... Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, because that's very interesting, because he basically 
spoke the language of the heads of churches in Jerusalem, all 13 of them, which represent the hierarchy of churches. And if you remember, when I was out there in May, I got a similar line from the Latin patriarch. There you go. There you go. And of course, he said that not only because he wanted to be the one monarch to talk about it, but because Jordan retains the custodianship of the holy sites, both Muslim and Christian in Jerusalem. And therefore, there is an extra responsibility on Jordan and what is happening now, the almost daily incursions into Al-Aqsa esplanade by Jewish settlers and radical Israeli Jews. That is also a serious worry for uh, for Jordan. So he mentioned that. And of course, we know, you and I know, and a lot of our listeners might also know that the economy of Jordan is quite weak, is quite fragile. And we also see that there is a re-emergence of new alliances in that part of the world. For instance, I know that Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, and sometimes the United Arab Emirates are getting together, knocking their heads together to try and find ways out of the crises that they're facing. So this is basically, in a nutshell, something that we've talked about a lot more, and I don't really want to spend more time on these countries because we've done it, uh, as I said, uh, ad nauseum in the past. Now, Qatar, you said you wanted to expand a little bit more on what the Emir of Qatar actually said. The only thing I would say about Qatar, and Qatar, of course, is now very much in the public eye because of the World Cup in November. Exactly, in November, December. And, uh, well, not December, yeah, November, Mm -hmm. December. Mm -hmm. That everybody knows about that, and that is going to be an absolute circus because over 1.3 million people are expected to descend upon Qatar. And Qatar has said as of the 1st of November, nobody can go to Qatar as a traveler, as a visitor, unless they have the Haya cards, which are basically cards which say that they are there in order to attend one or the football matches or the whole season, and they have their reservations made in various places because it's basically they're nightmare. full up already, aren't they? They are full up. It's a nightmare to try and manage all this 1.3 million people coming. And of course, a lot of these people are going to be fans from the West, uh, from Europe, and uh, they can be rowdy. And also, the fact is that a lot of those fans coming from Europe, particularly from the UK, who are uh, accustomed to having one or ten pints of uh, lager, uh, they're not going to be able to have it. It is a stereotype, but it's a true one. And... uh, This is where Qatar has to struggle, and I wish them the best because it's the first Arab country and the first Arab Muslim country to boot to host the World Cup. And if they manage to pull it through, that will be great. But coming to the point you made, and I'll stop there, the Emir of Qatar said something which was very interesting, amongst many other things. He said that he indirectly or subtly criticized the normalization of relations with Syria which is very true because there is a tendency now with some countries trying to renormalize relations, including from the Gulf region. Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates are two good examples. We open up the embassies, we go back as if nothing happened, as if 2010, 2011 to 2000 and whatever, when so many people were slain, were killed, were jailed, uh, where half the country was lost, and then Russia came in, took part of the country, Turkey has taken part of the country, the Americans are somewhere near the oil wells doing their their own bit. The Kurds up there are a pain in the backside of Turkey, but they're also serving American interests. It's a mishmash that is happening. And for the Emir of Qatar, who now is a very close ally of the United States, to, to criticize uh, the normalizing states is a very subtle message and one that would encourage a lot of people to say that Qatar is not going the way of normalization. In other words, All is forgiven, Bashar al-Assad. Please come and take control. We're all right because the world has changed. We don't want those demonstrators. We don't want anything to do with an Arab uprising, etc., etc. I thought that was something that the political observers will have noticed just as I did. And I just wanted to share it with you and through you with our uh, listeners. Goodness, that's quite strong though, isn't it? It is. Um, And also which I think was quite strong, 
Did the Emir not also say that Israel should end occupation of Palestine and went as far as to say that the UN Security Council should shoulder its responsibility in that? He probably did say that, yes, indeed. And uh, Qatar has always been quite firm on that, that these are occupied territories that have to be uh, returned to their rightful owners. And the rightful owners are the Palestinians and uh, the settlers settlers who are running amok uh, in these places, uh, building their own settlements, making the two-state solution virtually impossible, rendering the one-state solution, the binational solution, even more difficult. This has to be dealt with. But at the moment, uh, with the normalization by some Arab countries with Israel, by the fact that there is a wall that separates Palestinians from Israelis, you were there a few months ago, you saw that Mm -hmm. wall, for instance, in Bethlehem. Now it is full of images of Shirin Abu Akleh. All these things that are happening means that the Palestinian issue is no longer the issue that haunts Israelis or that preoccupies Israelis. They think that they can manage the occupation and they can keep the Palestinians under their thumb so long as they give them a little bit of oxygen every now and then to breathe. And that, of course, goes against migraine, but that's something else. What Israel is now worried about and what Israel is doing through its enormous lobby in the United States and elsewhere is to try and lobby against any Iranian influence in the region. And the JCPOA uh, nuclear agreement is part of that lobbying. So for Israel now, the real enemy is not the Palestinians. They can be controlled. They can be kept under their thumb. It is Iran. And this is why we see this coming together of some Arab countries, which also share the view that Iran is an arch foe. And this concatenation of purposes means that Uh, the Palestinian situation is not there. So it's good for the emir of Qatar to remind the world that uh, they are concerned, particularly if you look at it, uh, James, Qatar basically subsidizes Gaza Strip. Mm. The money that comes to Gaza Strip, to Hamas, to pay for all the public uh, service uh, uh, officials, employees, people there, security people, where is it coming from. Part of it is coming from Qatar. And this is why uh, Israel is not making too much of uh, noise when uh, Qatar says that the occupied territories have to go back because they're doing a service. They're keeping Gaza quieter, if that's possible, than what it would have been without this money to pay for those people who need to live. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have memories of being in Gaza five years ago, and I'm pretty sure that the International Hotel has the Qatari embassy in the basement, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Hmm. So it's all starting to make sense. Yes, it does. Now, you mentioned Iran, Harry. Now, obviously, not just you, a lot of people are talking Iran, and a lot of people are talking JCPOA, the nuclear agreement. Or not talking about or it not. this week, because there is a fresher news item. The only thing I want to talk about this time of uh, re-Iran are the huge protests that are taking place across the whole country, all provinces. It's not only in one place. It's not only the capital, Tehran. It's not only in the Khuzestan province. It's happening all over the place. And why is it happening? It's happening because a young woman, 22-year-old woman, uh, Mahsa Amini, who hails from the Kurdish northwestern region of Iran, came to Tehran. And the morality police, or what they call the guidance patrols, the Ershad-e-Gasht force that basically goes around making sure that everybody has got a headscarf on, the hijab, they're correctly dressed, they decided that she hadn't. Now, remember, Masa Amini was a woman of Kurdish origins. So she probably had some hair coming out from under her scarf, etc. They stopped her. They interrogated her. Word is that they took her to a police custody. And from there, she found herself in a hospital where she was comatose for three days. And then she died. And of course, the implication of that is that she was beaten up brutally and uh, God knows what kind of internal hemorrhages happened that she went into a coma and then she died. And this basically meant that huge protests led by women and young people across the whole of Iran. It started in uh, Tehran, the capital, and then it went to other places. And it started 
protests against uh, the death, but also against the supreme leader of uh, Iran, because he and the president, Ibrahim Raisi, basically said that we are going to control these demonstrations are uh, illegal, etc., etc. And uh, they had said, the supreme leader had said that the morality earlier, that the morality police had the right to Uh, make sure that everybody abides by those rules and does not flout those dress rules that they have. So the the uh, demonstrations happened across the whole country, and a lot of people wrote about. It. There's been there's been tons and tons of uh, articles and pieces on it. People are saying that could this be the straw that breaks the camel's back? And what do they mean by that? By that they mean that these rights really. Let's let's take a step. back for a minute. Khomeini, Ayatollah Khomeini, took the plane and came from France in 1979. He was there until, I think, 1989. Then he died. Mm-hmm. And the Shah was removed. And the whole social system of Iran changed. It became so-called more religious, but that's a debatable issue. It social demeanors, hijabs, this, that, and the other happened. Then we had uh, his successor, Ayatollah Khamenei, who's still there to date. Now, the interesting thing is that people who are involved with these demonstrations across the country are women and the youth. Already 50 people have died. And they are going around chanting protests. And one of the protests that they are chanting is basically they're saying Zan Zendegi Azadi, which are How's your Farsi? The, which are which is Farsi for women. Mm-hmm. They're they're chanting in favor of empowering women, life and liberty, or freedom and. Therefore, at the moment, the the government is facing a huge protest and a huge challenge. But this is not the first time that it's happened. If we go back to, I was going to say Green Revolution. There you go. That's the one. You, you see, I had to say something. You had to say something, and you you said the right thing because that was during the time of Musavi and others, where it frittered out. But the reason it frittered out, go ahead. You were well, only only because. I think it's it's very fascinating for me. We've been doing this for 13 years, Middle East analysis. So we covered the Green Revolution, so-called, uh-huh. you know, and that's the sort of probably the strongest sign of dissent that had been seen for some time back then. That's quite true. And the reason it didn't work then, although then even then people said, "Oh, it's going to work," but Musavi and the people who were with him were part of the establishment, so they didn't go the full hog. Now the reason people are saying is this the the straw that'll break the camel's back because the people who are on who are fighting who are uh, setting f- on fire police cars etc. Mm-hmm. These are people who are young people, women and young protesters who have just had about enough, and they're saying enough is enough. They're not establishment. But we have other examples. We've got examples of this happening during the so-called Arab uh, uh, Spring. We have examples of this happening in Sudan. We have examples of this happening in Lebanon. We have other examples in Iraq during the uh, Tishreen uh, movement uh, demonstrations, where young people who are not part of the establishment have gone out on the streets and they've tried to change the system. It hasn't worked. Why hasn't it worked? It hasn't worked because the state has its power behemoth that basically suffocates any freedom or any liberty that these people might be demonstrating for. And the second reason why it doesn't happen is because even if they try to, by force of sheer numbers, to impose their will momentarily on the country, then the question is: Well, okay. You're demonstrating against the regime, against the oppression, against the violation of human rights. But what are you demonstrating in favor of? And that's where it becomes a Good little question. bit questionable because these countries, uh, which are run by basically dictators, are countries where they're not allowed to think freely. 
And if they're not allowed to think freely and, 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 and experiment with uh, different theories and options, the answers are not ready-made. They're not tailor-made there for them to say, oh, yes, we don't want this, but we want that. This happened in Lebanon. This happened in Sudan. This happened even in uh, Iraq, where to date, and the Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa al-Kadhimi was in the UNGA as well uh, in New York, where he basically he talked about how Iraq won the war against ISIS. It hasn't won the war against ISIS. It has basically removed ISIS from the uh, metropolitan areas and push them to other areas where they are still very much active. But in uh, Iraq as well, there is a standoff now, Shia against Shia. Kurds are unsure what they want. They can't agree on who they're, the next president of Iraq is supposed to be. The Sunnis are the minority who are trying to keep quiet in case they'll be stepped upon. And of course, the other minorities, be that Christians, Armenians, Yazidis or whatever, they're not saying anything either. But the question in Iran is that will the government be able to reimpose what it calls public order by basically quashing all these protests. And to do that, you have to remember, that's why I started with the history. Khomeini came. After Khomeini, there was Khamenei. Now, everybody knows that Khamenei is sick. In 2014, he was treated for prostate cancer. Now he has got serious intestinal problems as well. So everybody is expecting him to die. And if he dies as supreme leader, because the ultimate voice, the last word is for the supreme leader. If he dies, who's going to succeed him? Two options. Option number one is the president himself, Ibrahim Raisi. He might uh, get it because he very much wants to get it. And the other one is Moshtaba Khamenei, who is the spiritual leader's son. He's 53 years old. He is the head of something called Al-Bayt. Al-Bayt is the... A place where they advise the spiritual leader. But the decision on who becomes the next supreme leader is by the what is known as the assembly of experts, and there are 88 of them, who decide on who actually takes over. This is where the situation, I think, is very difficult. And if you want me to throw in another spanner between those two contenders for the top job, Khamenei's son, which I think the spiritual leader, Vilayat al-Faqih, wants him to get that job after him, he doesn't have the credentials. He's not even an ayatollah. And according to the Iranian constitution, he's got to be an ayatollah. He is a hajatul Islam. So he's not yet an ayatollah. Will they make him an ayatollah? Will they speed up the process in order to get him there? I don't know. But is it the straw that will break the camel's back? I want to be a little bit skeptical and say no, but I think it's a very critical station in the history of Iran as it tries to liberate itself from the yoke of a mulocracy that wants to do religion, wants to do politics, and wants to control every single item of life for everybody in that country. And Iranians are too much free-spirited, despite the fact that for 40, 50 years they're now in a different place. I don't think it can last forever and a day. The question is, when will it change? And what happens with this young, unfortunate girl? And there are so many conspiracies on social media, as you might expect. Some people even say that Masa Amini committed suicide in order to force these protests in order to change the regime. I think that is one of those conspiracy theories that social media likes to propagate. But for me, it's a critical station. Where will it take Iran? I don't know. Now, before we move on to your two afterthoughts, we, we must talk Lebanon. Move on to Lebanon. But it always upsets me to move on to Lebanon, Harry, because on a serious note, we, we talk about the, you know, the political mess. You know, where, when are we going to see this? You know, the political tug of war, the, the elections, economic meltdown. You've talked about the, what is it now, two years ago, the blast in Beirut mm-hmm. and the awful the re- repercussions. Yeah, exactly, of that. We just, I don't know, I just depress ourselves talking about Lebanon. What do you want to say about Lebanon? Well, what I would say is the following. I mean, all these things that you said which depress you about Lebanon, you're absolutely right. 
What depresses me even more about Lebanon is that I have beautiful got country, by the way. A beautiful, beautiful country. It could be Cyprus. It could be, mm. uh, well, it used to be known as the Switzerland or the Paris of the Middle East. But forget all that. What also depresses me a lot is probably in all those MENA Gulf countries that we constantly speak about and that I constantly try to share with you and with listeners some of my own thoughts, sometimes uninvitedly and sometimes invitedly. But what characterizes Lebanon for me also is that I have very, very good friends there. So for me, I'm invested in human relations, in friendships. Probably my best friend in the world, she hails from Lebanon. Bit of an academic colossus. Thank you very much, uh, James. I know you know who I'm talking about. But all these people who are there, they are an investment in human relations. And when I look at Lebanon today, economic meltdown, you see all those boats who are leaving from Tripoli, who are leaving from Arida. Arida is in the north, close to the Syrian border. In the last one, they were in a boat. They wanted to leave from Uh, Lebanon via Syria to go to Italy, the boat sank, 94 people are dead. We're talking about two, three days ago. It's still in the headlines if you open uh, your news. The heists, I call them heists. People call them Robin Hood bank raids. People are raiding banks with plastic or real guns, pointing them at bank managers saying, look, you've frozen all our money for two years. I want money to survive, to live. Give me some money. How do you deal with these people who are desperate because they have the money, but they yeah, can't access it? It wasn't all the talk of being stealing their own money at gunpoint. Exactly. Exactly. You have judges on strike because some political parties or forces aren't happy with the way those judges are dealing with cases such as the explosion at the port, such as other things. You see people storming of parliament, the ex-retired police force are storming the parliament. They actually went quite close and then they were rebuffed. Uh, Megaphone, which is one of those free thinking news outlets, they said that they tried to storm parliament to say for crying out loud, do something. But in my opinion, and this is important, when we talk economic meltdown, In this country, let me take this country, when we're talking about we're having uh, white nights because we're sleepless. Why are we sleepless? Because inflation is 10%, because Liz Truss wants to give massive uh, bonuses to bankers and people with huge salaries, and she wants to cut down on taxes, etc., etc. And we're saying, how are we going to balance the books? How is Quasi Quarteng going to balance the books? But if we have economic problems in this country, if we are in a recession or close enough to a recession, as is the EU in general, the Western world, as is America, for instance, it's an economic problem. But the economic problems of Lebanon are not economic. They are political. Mm. It's because of the corruption, the rampant corruption across the board with the political elite of that country, who would actually do anything they can to preserve their advantages, their whatever it is, in order to stay in power. And this is why the economic meltdown of Lebanon is more political, and it is drawn to, and I don't want to get too much into detail, because I'd lose most of our listeners, but if there are three or four Lebanese listening to us, and there might well be, I would remind them of the Marm Khail agreement that basically gave those uh, political parties the right to control the country, what what happens to the money, the Ponzi schemes uh, of the Bank of Lebanon with all the money now that is held in the banks, and the people who own those monies can't access them, where people are going to try and find something to eat, where well, well over 50% of the country is under the line of poverty. If you and I were to suggest to our listeners, imagine yourselves in this country, whether in uh, metropolitan, multicultural London, or in the home counties, or in the north, minus the leveling up. If we consider ourselves in Lebanon facing the same problems, 
Will we be able to survive? I bet you we won't. And there will be massive protests. What we're having now, a trade union here and a trade union there threatening a strike, is nothing compared to what is happening in the Lebanon. This is where Lebanon is today. And because I can identify with Lebanon in a way that I probably cannot with Yemen, for instance, which is also in a state of, I don't know, another meltdown situation, it pains me more to know that those people, those vital people who are working, I was going to do, I'll tell you something, I was going to do a YouTube episode with the director of Adyan in Beirut. Adyan, the director of Adyan, her name is Dr. Naila Tabara. She won a prize in Germany, in Berlin, called the Ibn Rushd prize. She actually shared that prize with the director of another NGO in Baghdad in Iraq called Masarat. And I wanted to do a YouTube with uh, Dr. Naila Tabara about Adyan and her work. And one aspect of her work that really, really impresses me is their uh, work on citizenship. Because in the Middle East, North Africa and the Gulf, there is no such thing as citizenship. There is what we used to have in this country. We are all subject to the queen. We're not citizens. The same thing is, is very much there, but the legal norms and measures are somewhat different. And I told her, we'll do this. We'll do it when I come back from Finland. We'll do it some other time. And she said, don't worry, Harry. And I'm pretty much paraphrasing her email answer. She said, I'm swamped with her. She's back in Beirut now. She got her prize. I'm swamped, which I can well believe. Besides, she said, let's hope that we will have internet to do the YouTube episode. Now, if you and I, if any of our listeners, I challenge them, whether there are five listeners or 5,000, I challenge them. If you didn't have an internet for a whole week, how would you react? If you didn't have internet for one hour, how would you react? These people, they don't have these things. They go to the bakery to buy bread. They don't have bread. Why? Because the bread is not there. Why? Because $1 on the official rate is 1,500 Lebanese liras. Mm. If you go to buy in the black market, $1 is 38,000 liras. It's incredible. So all this is manifesting itself economically, but... The reason is politically. The country is unable to breathe and its citizens are unable to breathe because they are hooked to a system that doesn't allow them to breathe. And yet, despite all that, Lebanon still has a voice in the international arena. And I'll stop here. Now, look, you said you wanted a couple of afterthoughts. You're going to have to be snappy, but let's have them. Very snappy. First afterthought, nothing to do with the MENA and Gulf region, but something that the MENA and Gulf region is very much affected by, and that's the Ukrainian war. And as we know, because Russia is not doing well at all, President Vladimir Putin has basically decided to mobilize a whole range of other soldiers to go to the front to fight against the Ukrainian forces, which to the, now are weaponized by Western uh, arms. Patriarch Kirill, the Russian Orthodox Patriarch, who has often been criticized for being a close ally of President Putin, he said in a statement that soldiers dying in Ukraine will have all their sins washed away because they are fighting for the home country. And I thought to myself, how different is that from those radical Islamist movements that say, go and blow yourself up and because you are liberating an inch of uh, a territory and because you will be martyred and martyrs will be received with open arms and vestal virgins. I mean, can you imagine that? This is the leader of the Orthodox, the largest Orthodox country in the world. I just leave it there. You decide, you understand religion more than I do. You work religion, I don't. You decide what you want to say about this now I, or I later. I think it's best to don't say anything. Go on. And the second thing I just wanted to say to lighten up finally this episode is to say, guess what? The Jewish people 
are celebrating their new year. So the new year in Hebrew is Rosh Hashanah, and it is year number 5782. So they've got a big head start on us as 2022. And Rosh Hashanah opens up the season of Jewish high holidays, because there are many more holidays coming after this one. And I'll just basically mention one little tradition that I used to enjoy a lot when during the New Year's celebrations I used to be invited by uh, Jewish friends of mine when I was living uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, they would have apples dipped in honey as a way of heralding in a sweet new year. And then they would have things with pomegranates, they would have things with challah bread, which is basically what you and I know as brioche. So I just wanted to mention to our listeners that it's the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, and all I wanted to do is conclude by saying Shana Tova Lekolam, which means Happy New Year to you all. And let nobody say that you don't have a lot of love for Jews and Jewish culture. I do. I have a lot of, uh, this, is, this is very sort of cheesy, but I do have friends and I do enjoy, and I do enjoy the Jewish sense of humor, particularly the Yiddish sense of humor. But what I don't enjoy is Israeli politics. Yes. Let's and there is a difference. Let's in, divide those two things out. Absolutely. Thank you. And once again, Shana tova lekulam, shana tova chaveri, friends. Well said, Harry, and well done for getting through Middle East analysis this time round. I keep saying, James and I will only do 45 minutes maximum not to bore the wits out of our listeners because they say, Harry, it's not it's you who long. needs the Panadol, we need it. Yeah, I know. I mean, the trouble is, if I enjoyed it a little less, we'd probably be okay. I think the problem is it just keeps piquing my interest and I keep taking it on a question too far. James, how am I to disagree with that statement? I bow down most humbly to that last statement of yours. Well, in which case, we shall leave the remaining <laughs> listeners to pop a few Panadol, have a lie down, maybe have a cup of have a cup of tea if you want, or, a, or an Arabic coffee, whatever floats your boat. But um, I hope you've stayed with us. And if you have, you have our utmost respect. So thank you very much for that. And Dr. Harry Hagopian, 45 minutes next month then. 45 minutes next month and pigs can fly. Yeah, they can. <laughs> there they go now. <laughs> See you next month.